Welcome to the Key to All Mythologies podcast, where we discuss classical texts, mostly. Today, we are discussing Aristotle's poetics and wrapping up the second half of that uh, text. In the second half of Aristotle's poetics, he covers a, has a discussion of diction uh, to wrap up. Uh, this is the discussion of the elements of tragedy, and then... He discusses epic poetry in general, and then criticisms of poetry, and then compares epic and tragedy briefly <laughs> to close the book. Very briefly. Very. But everything in, everything in poetics is, is brief. <laughs> it's a brief book. Do you, did you, did anyone else find it funny that, so I actually laughed out loud when I read this. Um, he attempts to say what makes for good poetry for good diction he just does this, all this discussion of diction and he, he argues for a kind of mixed diction which, where that's uh, not too many unusual or highfalutin words or coinages he says a mass of rare words is gibberish and but also not too uh too low uh, too common and too parochial too bland yeah too parochial and then he comes to the end of that whole sequence, um, 1469a and onward. He says, is it, imp it is important, however, that each of these devices should be used with a sense of propriety. This is true of both compound and rare words, but metaphorical language is the most important. The right use of metaphors is a sign of inborn talent and cannot be learned from anyone else. <laughs> it comes from the ability to observe similarities in things. I just thought it was so... Um, uh, or like a surprising conclusion to that section that he it's like i'm trying to tell you how to write good poetry but then at the end he says but the most important thing is metaphor and a sense of metaphor and that can't be learned from anyone <laughs> it's just mm -hmm. natural talent that cannot be acquired through teaching um can, can i read another short text relevant to that and then let's think about that yeah. this, this is from chapter 17 right before 1455b and he says, hence, the poetic art belongs either to a naturally gifted person or an insane one, since those of the former sort yeah. are easily adaptable and the latter are out of their senses. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Aristotle. And it's yeah, an insane person. Um, it's deranged in my translation. Um, well, so, so now we know that writing can't be taught. Debate <laughs> over. <laughs> Which... What were the what were the two again? Your words. In mine. It was insane and deranged. Derangement of the senses. That was really exciting to me. I was super fantastic. So in mine, it says a naturally gifted person or an insane one. Mm -hmm. Since those okay. are the former, since those are the former sort, which would be naturally gifted, are easily adaptable, which I'm not exactly sure what that means. And the latter are out of their senses. <laughs> wow. Huh. My, my translation says genius. Exactly. Genius. Mine too. Uh, really. Genius well, who, inspired who, uh... person. It's a really nice translation because it has a sense of gene, like being born into it. Right. So there's, there's, there's like a nice double rhythm. Because I think, in, well, even though genius does kind of sound weird in, in some way, like it's about having a big brain or something like that. Nonsensical. Adam, where what was the where was the passage you were reading from? Uh 
1450 50 something 9a 59 yeah oh yeah that's right i mean is it is it possible adam that well aristotle is he just classifying for classifying sake here <laughs> what do you what do you mean well like um i mean perhaps th this isn't an instruction this isn't an instruction manual for writing good tragedy mm -hmm. is it mm -hmm. i don't know and if it's not that then what is it <laughs> Well, don't you think that some of the sections in the latter half here that we read are very close to an instruction manual for how to write good poetry, though, or at least how to become better at? Yeah, right. I mean, what is the what else is that even? What else? If someone said to Aristotle, "How do I write good poetry?" He want to say he would say you want to use a mixed diction, <laughs> some right. hot, you know, some unusual words and some common words mixed correctly. You, you know, you want to imitate these kinds of actions of, of these kinds of people. Um, you want to use the correct meter. You want to use, you know, um, when you're talking, you want to use heroic pentameter or whatever. I can't remember the heroic pentameter when you're using, when you're talking about the actions of heroes, right? Nature yeah. kind of suggests the right meter to use. And you want to, you want, but most importantly, you want to understand how to use metaphor, which I cannot tell you how to do. Yeah, but I feel like I feel like the way he goes about it is far more descriptive because like all the way along he's going like, you know, because when someone didn't do this, they ended up having this, you know, complete failure, you know, like like he talks about Agathon trying to do the entirety of the Trojan War and it just like totally falls flat and Homer's mm -hmm. like superior because because he just takes like a certain piece of the Trojan War. And Agathon's not like a chump, you know, right? He was like pretty, he was pretty good. He was a pretty good poet. He won wards and stuff. So I think he's like, in a certain way, I mean, I'm not saying it's not prescriptive to a certain extent, but it feels more descriptive because, mm -hmm. because of the whole time he's using historical examples. And he seemed, it seems like he kind of relies on their successes and failures and then investigates into the similarities and dissimilarities between them i mean he doesn't like outright say that but it feels like that's kind of implied throughout yes that think about the uh the context of greek plays that the plays were typically staged for competition and so one has to judge which play is the better play to award the prize so I feel like um, in line with Paul that the the poetics is guidelines that are more useful for for judging the merits of a staged tragedy rather than how to compose one. But I think it can serve both purposes. But from Aristotle's standpoint, since he is uh, a thinker and not really a poet, it uh, it certainly is valuable if one wants to know how to judge a good play from a bad play. Well, well, here he's really, he really is a literary critic, right? He's mm -hmm. doing something that is not all that different from what like Lionel Trolling is doing 2000 years later. I, I disagree. I think it's, I think it's more philosophic than that. Like I think his opening question is what is poetry and what can it be? And I think when he says things aren't good, he's not saying, it fails on the ground of like an aesthetic thing. I think it, it fails in, in that it fails to be its own being. It's an ontological failure. Yeah, or, or <laughs> some kind of like, yeah, like it, it lacks in the mimesis of poetry. Because um, I think he's really, 
I mean, like it's the 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 whole thing coming down on, in favor of tragedy as opposed to epic hinges on the tragedy is more complete. It's more whole, right? It's more its own thing, and therefore yeah. it's it has its it's like a more full, flushed out being. And and so I think that concern has to be motivated philosophically. Like I think that's him looking for a philosophic distinction rather than an aesthetic distinction, which makes me feel like it, like he's not doing something like literary criticism. Well, so I was kind of trying to get us here last week, um, or I was thinking about this at the end of last week. So Aristotle's initial method is inductive, right? He looks at what's going on in the tragedies around him, and then he tries to describe what tragedy is. But then it almost feels like, to kind of follow up on this ontological idea, it almost feels like he is trying to delineate the sort of ideal form almost in a platonic sense of both tragedy and epic, something that exists outside of any individual work. Mm-hmm. And by that ideal form, he judges, yeah, he speaks about certain works as failing in certain respects, <laughs> to use an Aristotelian sort of uh, verbiature. Is that how you guys are understanding this? Yeah, that's, that's what I thought, where... I mean, I wouldn't call it ideal in the sense of like um, maybe imagined or, or, but it definitely is ideal in the sense that there's like a purity to it, right? So like when you've hollowed down to this like whole mimesis, right? It's, it's a singular complete mimesis. That is a philosophic indication of like some kind of human faculty, right? Like we've, we've discovered one of the ways human beings go about the world and that is through poetry, and that has inherent philosophic worth, if not necessarily aesthetic worth. Do you think it's, I mean, do you think it's fair to say that it's um, akin to what he's doing in the biology or the physics in that way, where he's like example, 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 and then attempting to identify the what unifies all the examples, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's why he's, it's ultimately not going to be an ideal project because he, he, he he's, philosophically committed to the idea that any idea is is completely manifest right if it if it doesn't manifest it doesn't exist so i'd be really cautious about saying something like oh this is a projection out from the field into like this unique thing and more like it's a telos like every poet has it in mind and this is some kind of like like necessary quality of of representing things even yeah. if poets don't do it in the way I'm doing it. Yeah, I was thinking um, that that makes me think about what a huge distinction he's making with Plato here, right? Like when Plato considers poetry, he considers it as part of a political community and like rejects poetry as part of the ideal political community, right? Um, and Aristotle like is- <laughs> isolates it as a specific, a specific and kind of unique human endeavor and there's no connection to the political world here in that way, right? Yeah. Well, can I is push that, back? Can I push back a little bit? I, was, I, was, yeah, I, I guess that's something that exactly, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um, well, I think um, one of the things that makes it feel sort of like, like an eternal thing, even if it's not, is that the, the telos for tragedy is fixed. There's no discussion about the telos for tragedy. He, he sort of announces it, right? What do we need tragedy for? We need tragedy in order to evoke fear and pity uh, for purposes of catharsis. 
to cleanse the, the to cleanse the hoi polloi of these feelings of fear and pity, and yeah. and that's sort of fixed, right? That that's not something that's up for debate, which is very different than how we think about genre today. We ask, what is this novel trying to do? And I think I don't think it would be that hard, even though he doesn't explicitly say this. I don't think it'd be that hard to argue that the catharsis of tragedy serves a function within the polis, a necessary function. Yeah. Well, and I think it's also important, and I think this just piggybacks on what you're getting at, Elijah, is like, he does mention how the different forms of poetry like talk about good or like better or lesser than men or, you know, the same as us. I think at least, like, I, I know he doesn't go into it explicitly, but it feels like in the background there, these poems are, or the, you know, these, these literary works are supposed to sort of serve as, I don't know, like some sort of guideline or like reminder or something like that. So there is like, I think there is still like- Wait, 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 what do, what do, you, certain, what do you mean? A reminder or guideline of, reminder of- Well, what? just like to, to sort of like, sh it's, a, it's an exemplar of goodness or badness or whatever, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, okay. So I, I think there's something like a platonic impulse there. I, I agree it's different for sure, but yeah. mm -hmm. at least, at least, you know, in what we get from Plato, but- I guess yeah. what I was trying to what I was trying to say before is like one way of of criticizing art is to like assign it a kind of political function, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is what Plato does. And one way, another, the opposite of that is to say that art just exists for the sake of art and it doesn't have any relationship to the political at all, um, right? Mm -hmm. Like its own special sphere of of human activity, and I, and. Aristotle is like in a, a different, I mean, he's not criticizing art through the lens of Platonism, but he's also not like just saying art just exists by itself for itself. But he, mm -hmm. he does say things that seem kind of like that sometimes too, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, he wants to say that nature teaches us the proper meter to use, right? So right. there is a there is the kind of uh, intuitive relationship with um there, but, but the pole, but the polis and nature would be like really intimately aligned, right? For Aristotle, yes, yes. So, yes. I want. I wonder um, along these lines. I wonder if we could say, as I remember in the Republic, the uh, Plato's main problem with poetry is that, particularly the lewd, the descriptions of the lewd activities of the gods stirred people up, right? Mm. And, yeah. and and we could say riled them up. And then Aristotle says, no, 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 uh, Plato, you're missing the point. And, I, and I'm influenced by Gerard here, I think. No, 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 you're missing the point. Um, this tragedy can actually purify those, that fear and pity and then and serve almost a pacifying function for people. And that's me. That, and Aristotle never explains why. He never says, he just says the natural use of mm -hmm. tragedy is, to, is catharsis for fear and pity. He never extends that to the polis. So I'm, I am speculating here and I will acknowledge that. Um, but I think I think Aristotle's pointing out something about the nature of art that Plato didn't see or didn't want to see or didn't want to talk about. But it's true that art can both rile people up and can serve some sort of pacifying function. And that might not be the right word. Right. But it seems more accurate that tragedy as Aristotle lays it out would be would be cathartic or, or pacifying or comforting even and and less about rabble rousing right yeah that's what i think he's saying yeah yeah 
which and that would serve a function in a well-ordered city right people yeah. going to the tragedy on friday night and all of the all of the sort of anxieties are somehow purified through this experience <laughs> of, of you know and it's just like watching yeah. a movie right tragedy it's, is the opiate of uh -huh. the masses that's exactly <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if that's what he's saying it yeah, builds I think, tension and releases it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's stronger than simply something like an opiate because it, it seems like, I mean, maybe I'm really hung up on this, but it seems like what it's doing has inherent philosophic value. Like the, like something about mimesis. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really hung up on the fact that he includes everything from the lutist comedies to the platonic dialogues as mimetic. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that is really influencing my reading um, and I think he is in line with Plato in saying that poetry can rile people up. And I think the madman passage is the example of that, right? Where the people who are most outside of their body are either geniuses in the sense that they're, they're, they're adaptable, right? They're people who, it's like, you know, my, my wife is the perfect example of this. She is like unbelievably empathic and always thinking about what other people are thinking in a way that doesn't break her or, or, or make her like lose her mind, right? She's like, like it's, it's a stunning capacity to always be oriented towards other, other people. And then the other one example of that is, is just like the madman where you're outside of yourself, but it has, there's no orientation. There's no aim at the good. You're just constantly not a human being. You're like, at, you're like playing back and forth at the verge of humanity. And he says both of those people are necessarily mimetic because they're they're performing they're, they're somehow bringing to light something way outside of themselves and, and bringing it present i think that's what he's so interested in like getting down and i think that motivates a lot of his decisions but yeah but then somehow in identifying it with like the genius it becomes this like necessary mode of excellence can we can we just keep pushing on this genius thing because i think it's really interesting i think it's helpful to get at what he, how he's thinking about this stuff. Cause in my translation, it says from where Adam read that it's, so I'll just read the last sentence again. It is the one thing that cannot be learned from others. Um, that is the really good use of metaphor. And it is also a sign of genius since a good metaphor implies an intuitive perception of the similarity in dissimilars. And that's like, I mean, that's such a like precise and bizarre definition of a sign of genius you know and i was i was curious what the the greek is maybe it doesn't ultimately matter yeah i don't know it, does anyone else find that curious the perception of the similarity in dissimilars where was that line again so this is uh 1459 a like six so sax translates it uh, for this alone cannot be grasped from anyone else and is a sign of natural gifts, since to use metaphors well is to have insight into what is alike. Mm. When I think, um, Adam, is it right what, what you found funny or interesting in this is how he sort of summarily dismisses this debate we've been having for 2,000 years <laughs> about like genius, and he's just like, yeah, I don't really, <laughs> like, this is obvious, yeah. and I don't really care to go into it, because this is something <laughs> that, that shocks, you know, we could sit and argue about for hours, right? Yeah, uh, I mean, I also love the moments in Aristotle where he pursues his chain of thinking to some place where, where reflection can't go any farther. And he just says, 
that's that. Like that's as far as my thought is going to penetrate and I don't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> We're going to move on to the next topic. I really love his like, his just like the accuracy of his self-knowledge. Like the, he knows he has a really powerful method, but he also recognizes there are clear limits to the method. And he, when he comes to like a limit, he doesn't, it doesn't bother him. He doesn't try to pretend that his method can absorb it. He just says, that's the limit. Let's go to the next thing. About tragedy and epic, we have said enough. Yeah, <laughs> Let us yeah, move on yeah, to. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Um, to go to what Paul was saying, I think it's in the realm of poetry. I think it's a pretty good definition of what, of genius. I mean, I, or I guess at least it's a pretty good definition of a kind of like natural talent mm-hmm. that um, that any good poet will possess, I want to say, is like mm-hmm. pointing out surprising connections that when you reflect on them, do seem true and do seem to illuminate previously, you know, unconnected <laughs> uh, phenomena or something. But to, to Greg's point about this, I agree. To Greg's point about this being a philosophical work, I mean, what he's describing there is something like the Socratic dialectic, right? Can you say more? So since you use metaphor as well as to have insight into what is alike, um, and so, I mean, right, Socrates and company pursuing the question of what is justice, it's a question of how are these things alike and how are they different? We call A, B, and C justice, um, you know, giving a weapon to a madman and, uh, what, you know, uh, all these other examples, not, not uh, returning something that's been stolen. We call those justice, what makes them alike and what makes them different? It feels different than that to me, though. And that's why I like like my translation a little bit better, because I like that it's finding the similarity in dissimilars. Because like Mm -hmm. when Shakespeare says, or, you know, Romeo says, you are my son. (laughs) It's very clear Juliet and the son are not all that much alike, but Mm -hmm. he pinpoints this very particular similarity that would otherwise go unnoticed. That seems actually like really different from what is justice, right? Because what justice is, is just to like, I mean, this isn't what actually happens, but you could just like collect all of the just acts and be like, here's what's similar between them. That's justice, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But it seems like metaphor almost does the opposite where it's like, (laughs) it takes these two very different things and says, oh, here's this very one particular thing that is similar between them. Yeah, that's, that's tricky though, because we, he also wants to say that poetry is more like philosophy, right? Because it finds the universal in the in the particulars right because it deals with universals rather than particulars so if you are lining up all these examples of things that we say are just and you want to find the thing that unifies all of them is that like or unlike the juliet and the sun example because there is a way in which juliet is like the sun in that scenario right i mean is that something that's i don't think aristotle wants to say that that is this something that's particular to, oh, well, maybe he does. I guess this is a question. That's something that's particular to the characters in that particular moment. I think he wants to say that there's something universal about that metaphor, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I, I think that's why it is philosophical for sure. I think you're, I think that's really helpful, Adam. Like it, both of them in some way get at a universal, but their method of getting there seems really different to me. And then mm-hmm. the, and the poetic genius seems to be marked by, this different, you know, different routes mm-hmm. of getting there. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, right. So the the Socratic explanation for the the Romeo the Romeo line, "You are Juliet, you are the sun," would be that 
uh, Romeo has discovered that both Juliet and the son partake of the form of the beautiful or the form of the good or whatever, right? But I do think thinking about it in terms of method is probably a useful way to move forward. So, so yeah, it seems like the, the poetic method is like the, the metaphor thing is really just like looking at the root of the word too, right? It's to shine across or to shine after. So if I think Paul's kind of right to draw attention to, they have to be different or it's not a metaphor. And I think that's an inherently unphilosophic thing to do because if you're drawing connections between different things, you're not looking at things in themselves. You're not actually concerned with the subject. You're not asking the question, what is justice, right? Just like you're not asking, what is the sun? You say, Juliet, you're like the sun, right? And so that's fundamentally unphilosophic, but at the exact same time, it's drawing out a universal from the world of particulars and it's preserving particulars into a universal, which is deeply philosophic. And so like the, that metaphor thing is, is unphilosophic and it, it, that's unique to the poetry. And that's also like the mimetic thing, right? It's almost like metaphor becomes the new idea of mimesis or something, right? Like mimesis is like unclarified, 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 unclarified. And he arrives at this like thing and, and now we know what it fundamentally is, right? It's metaphor. It's the ability to make something look like what it's not. And yeah, and I think that's why he's so concerned with it as a philosophic subject because it's, it's just a, a beat away from philosophy um, and history for that matter. And like, you know, so many other things. Well, and that's, and that's certainly why Plato was worried about it too. Right. Cause he saw it as like a rival to philosophy in some sense, but so like at the risk of like slogan, like sloganeering here, it feels like what philosophy does is like deliberately set out to directly pursue the thing itself, let's say. And, but then what poetry does is like indirectly gets there. So that's like, Greg, that's kind of what I took as like, you're, you're not getting there. You're not getting there. You're metaphor, metaphor, metaphor. And then suddenly like you like shine upon this, this, this universal truth that wasn't there before. Whereas philosophy the whole time, it's like, you're like chunking away at something and just chipping away and chipping away. And then hopefully you, you know, dig down deep enough and get there. It's so funny. Cause I, uh, I, from the philosophic thing, am so concerned about the being of metaphor itself. Um, and that feels like a, a deeply unpoetic concern, right? Where like a poet's like, you just do the metaphor, right? It's a technique, you do it, right? And then like throughout, throughout the, the work, right? He, he keeps drawing attention to the poets do it, which is why I think another reason is not a manual for how to do poetry. Um, like as a technique, you just, you, you do, you act it out, you do it. If you're a genius. Yeah, you have to be a genius. Also, the genius in the Greek, it's eupho, which is like, or you, um, which basically means to have a good nature or to be like well-grown. Mm. Um, so it's the same root as phusis, like to nature, um, like mm. this like inborn, like excellence that emerges from you. Yeah, um, that's why Sachs translates it the way he does. How does he translate it? Good nature. Yeah. But I, I think genius is a really good Latin translation of the Greek where it's like, oh, this is like a, a, an inner bornness to you. So your yeah. point, Greg, uh, if I can try to summarize, you're saying that philosophy sort of methodologically seeks the one or seeks unity and poetry through the 
through means of the technet through the technet metaphor somehow seeks some sort of uh, unity through diversity or something. Yeah, so, and it's really interesting because so my translator has a really literal translation of the Greek, which I really like where he says, for to make metaphors well is to observe and that observe is theorian, like to see into like the way that the gods do, the theon. Yeah. Right, so to like look look into what is like, and then he drops it, um, and then he really annoyingly inserts brackets something else. But in the Greek, it's just to see into what is like, what's similar, and that's homoin or or whatever that is. Mm -hmm. um, so so poetry is seeing into the like or seeing the like. It seems like a lot of translators constantly immediately add from what is not. Or something, or, or or or, but that but that but that is a real addition, and I'm wondering about like really seriously removing that those that addition of from what's not like, and just taking taking that up as what poetry is like the seeing what is like in that that likeness that I think is precisely what's not philosophic. You're tr you're treating of sameness, not of, of of wholeness or something, not of unity. If we're trying to think about what, what separates poetry from philosophy, yeah. One important aspect of that separation, and I think Aristotle's acknowledging with this line about the metaphor, is that there's a kind of unschematic, irrational gap between laying out just what tragedy is as a genre based on what the practitioners have done so far and what a poet would actually do, right? That's, I think that's like, that's the real meaning of the natural talent or the genius here, right? And that's something that's not philosophical in that sense. That's not at all like what Aristotle wants to do with the biology of the physics, where he wants to make things very clear and very schematic and easy to follow steps, you know. He's sort of acknowledging here that that intuitive, that intuitive leap or that intuitive thought. That's really good, Adam, because that like pointing out that that joining what is like is somehow irrational or, or just outside of the realm of reason, I think is really interesting, right? Like it, Juliet's not the sun. Like you can't reason to that claim. Even if you do something like, oh, there's the platonic form of the beautiful possessing both, right, then yeah. <laughs> you're precisely no longer talking about Juliet or the sun, right? You've now started yeah. talking about the platonic form of the beautiful. Yeah. Um, whereas the poet does not mean like whatever the poet means it's not the platonic form of the beautiful when the poet does the metaphor juliet is the sun or juliet is like the sun the poet is reaching across an an, an unbridgeable gap by reason right yeah. they're, they're literally drawing things that that cannot be brought together by reason together and in doing so they're a genius right they're they're somehow beyond the scope of what reason can account for um, but but it sure as heck ain't philosophy, and it's it, it's I, I think I, I'm starting to read this book as more like a problem than for Aristotle than something he's like really figured out. I think that the thing you guys were saying earlier about how he reaches this end, he says, and the reasoning drops off. There is actually it seems like all over this work. And maybe that's why it's so short compared compared to his other lectures too. Is like this is something he cannot get to the bottom of. And it's, it's actually like a huge thorn in his method of doing philosophy. So he's got to account for it, but he's just going to drop it as fast as he can pick it up because it's some kind of like really nasty anti-intellectual thing that the poets are doing. Yeah. <laughs> two, two, two thoughts about that. One, 
I'm almost wondering if Aristotle is almost positioning himself a little bit like like Nietzsche relative to the Overman. Like you have all these poets who are not who are not doing the fullness of tragedy. You, you see it manifested in different parts in different poets. And Aristotle's like, I'm not the I'm not the the Uber poet, but the Uber poet, this is what he would do. <laughs> um, and then the other thing is just to underscore what you were saying, Greg. If we imagine a, sil a syllogism, the sun is beautiful and Juliet is beautiful, therefore Juliet is the sun or something. Um, it, just, it, doesn't, it doesn't work, right? It doesn't work. There's something, there's some sort of irrational leap there. I'm wondering, in, whenever we're ready, we should look at the, the actual definition of metaphor that he gives, I think, in chapter 21, but we don't need to brush there. It's very, uh, it's very capacious. <laughs> Uh, a metaphor is not a syllogism. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't think it is. Juliet's beautiful. The sun is beautiful. Juliet is the sun. But in the in the, <laughs> this is maybe not relevant. But but in the in Romeo and Juliet, he I mean it is true that it's not just that she's beautiful like the sun, right? If she's like above him, you know. Huh. I mean she is her light is shining down on him, so it's not. I mean, there is a kind of physical relationship that he is in to Juliet that is similar to the relationship the earth is in to the sun, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think if we're taking the poetry seriously, he, she is in that moment, or always, like the sun, but it's what the, the meaning of that, like she has to actually be that way. Otherwise there's no mimesis. Otherwise there's no representation. That's what I, yeah, yeah. That's what I want to say. It, it wouldn't be as good if, it wouldn't be as good of a line if he was just mm -hmm. like walking along and thought about her and he was like, Julia, it's like the sun or something, you know? Yeah, like right. the, the physicality is important also. Well, and, yeah, and but I mean, the, but the thing is, I think that now we're trying to like philo philosophize it to death too. I mean, I don't think this is wrong to do. I'm just saying like, there's a million different ways you can take it, you know, like she's the, she brings warmth to his life. She brings light to his life. She, he allow, she allows him to see the world anew, you know, like yeah, there's a million different ways you can take it. I mean, I'm not saying anything, what you guys just said is wrong, but yeah, again, yeah. Like, like you can't just like burrow down to it. And I think that's part of why it, it, it bothers Aristotle to Greg's earlier point is like, you can't pin it down. You can't schematic, you can't make it a schematic. It's always, it's kind of elusive, but it's still a truth. It's still a universal truth. Everyone knows what that means when you read it. I mean, given that you're experienced enough. I, mean, I think even in the, you know, if you, if you see this, because I mean, Aristotle, this is relevant, I guess, because Aristotle talks about how the, one of the advantages of tragedy over epic is that it can be, it's staged, right? And it has the spectacle and it has the acting and the actors have a role, <laughs> a role to play in the, in the staging of the tragedy. And I mean, in, if you see Romeo and Juliet, you know, it's like, what well, life from yonder window breaks, you know, the East Juliet is the sun and like the, the literal sun is rising, you know, and Juliet's fate, Juliet is occupying the space of sunrise right on the balcony so i mean there is yeah. this kind of um extremely literal component to it as well uh, yeah Th that also gets into remember how he makes that distinction between how the poet the poet of the, the tragedy and poet can can just be read and like that there, there's like a certain virtue to that like yeah that's intended to be seen but but as soon as you start seeing it now you're also taking into consideration the director as well and mm -hmm. so like, it seems like those kinds of conventions would have, would have to do with like the choices of the director as well, right? Mm -hmm. 
So that, that's an interesting relationship as well that I think is like a complexity here that he doesn't go into too much. The technique of uh, divorcing the tragedy from its presentation is, uh, is part of Aristotle's argument, let's say, in his comparison of epic and tragedy, which is what I, I dug into a little bit deeper, but uh, we wanted to talk about the definition of metaphor. Oh, yeah, we should but do I will that. Just, I guess I'll just complete my thought related to what Paul was saying, that Aristotle, in order to effectively compare tragedy and epic, has to divorce each from its presentation. We, should we, take it, we take it on a textual basis. So we can do metaphor first, though. Yeah, yeah. let's do metaphor, but let's come back to that. The metaphor is in chapter 21, 1457b. Yeah. I'll read the short. There's a short definition and then he unpacks it, but I'll just start with the short one and, and see what we think. So like right around line 10. A metaphor is a carrying over of a word belonging to something else from genus to species, from species to genus, from species to species, or by analogy. And then he goes on to talk about all those different relationships. Should I read on or? or... Yeah, give, yeah, us a, yeah, give us examples of the possibilities. By from genus to species, I mean, for instance, here stands my ship. For being tied to a mooring is a sort of standing. By from species to genus, truly 10,000 good things has Odysseus done. For 10,000 is a many, which here is used in place of many. By from species to species, for instance, drawing off the soul with bronze and cutting water with indestructible bronze. For here drawing has conveyed cutting and cutting drawing, since both are sorts of taking away. And I speak of analogy whenever a second thing has to a first, a relation similar to that which a fourth has to a third. For one will state the fourth in place of the second or the second in place of the fourth. And sometimes people add the thing to which the replaced word is related. I mean, for instance, a drinking bowl has to Dionysus a similar relation to that of, the, of a shield to Aries. Accordingly, one will call the drinking bowl a shield of Dionysus and the shield a drinking bowl of Aries. Or old age is to life as evening is to a day. Accordingly, one will call evening the old age of day or as Empedocles does, call old age the evening of life or the sunset of life. For some of the things said by analogy, there is no word laid down, but it will be stated in a similar way nonetheless. For example, to scatter seed is to sow, but there is no word for scattering flame from the sun. But this has to the sun a relation similar to that of sowing to seed, and hence sowing the God-created flame is said. And it is also possible to use a metaphor made in this manner in another way, calling something by a borrowed name, but negating one of the things proper to it. If, for instance, one were to speak of a shield, not as a drinking bowl of Aries, but as a wineless drinking bowl. That's where I see Aristotle like almost panicking about the possibility of poetry, because it is just like, from a philosophic perspective, it's total confusion, right? Like nothing nothing is itself anymore the shield's just the the wineless drinking bowl and the <laughs> drinking bowl is the the arm you know the 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 shield that bears no arms just like something hor you know atrocious like that 
Yeah, it's almost like he's almost like he's saying A is not A, A is not A, A is not A. It's just like he's just freaking out. No, the law of non-contradiction. Where is it? <laughs> but yeah, like it's pretty clear that Aristotle is both reverent of this ability, but scared, like scared of it too. It seems like. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm. I guess I don't read the, a lot of fear or panic in this. Uh, in this book. Um, I mean, I do think the Aristotle recognizes there, there are at least three ways of um, trying to trying to grapple with, with reality, right? There's, there's like philosophy and there's poetry and there's history. And I mean, a philosophy in, in a large sense, like natural science, you know, and all of Aristotle's pursuits. Um, and those three things are not quite the same. And he wants to, Seems to me he had, he set them up in a very clear hierarchy where philosophy is tops, poetry is second, and history is last. And um, he is self-aware enough to acknowledge that there are certain things that poetry can do that philosophy cannot do. But I don't I don't read him as like being disturbed by that. I just think he recognizes it's kind of outside of his his preferred way of operating and it's outside of his method and he's interested in it because he's interested in everything but i mean just uh, all that is to say i guess i don't i don't i don't get a sense of like of like uh of like panic or fear or something from this from this book um, well only because it's aristotle and like aristotle doesn't truly panic but as much as like aristotle can panic well, I I think so, so we're saying. thinking about this in like relationship to plato again right like he doesn't disparage i mean i think he is he likes strategy right i mean i think he likes homer he likes strategy he doesn't disparage poetry or art um he seems to be uh, no but i mean plato loves homer too i mean i i see what you're saying but it does and like i i agree with you it's like it's a credit to him that he does put the truth of poetry like at the same level as the truth of philosophy well, I don't think it's, it's not. He doesn't say at the same level. He says poetry says is closer they, to philosophy than history. Right. They get universal truths, though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in terms of the hierarchy, I mean, is it fair to say that philosophy deals with the universal, history deals completely with the particular, and then literature is in this liminal space where it's dealing with the universal through sort of particular narratives and particular actions? And that's what he's trying to work out here is how that works. Um, I think that's right, Elijah, but it, it, the whole metaphor thing as naming what is only like does seem to be a different universal than the universal philosophy. Because it, it's true that wine bowls are like shields, but the being of a wine bowl is not the being of a shield. Mm -hmm. um, and there's like a an accidental relationship in that they're, they're both circular or something. But, but so poetry is not wrong, but somehow it's not the same. It's not, it's not speaking about the same things philosophy ever would. Right. So what, it, what is it showing us when Homer writes something like Achilles, like a ravenous wolf descended on the Trojans? Like, what is that revealing to us? How is that thinking about the universal? Maybe that question can help us think through this. Because I think it raises Achilles into the universal, right? Like the, the same more. Yeah. So, so Achilles in a history, Achilles is strictly particular. 
And, and, and I think in Aristotle's conviction or what he's talking about, if you haven't met Achilles, tough luck. Um, and Achilles doesn't mean anything other than the particular set of historical events and actions over the course of his life. Right, so historical kind of Achilles is Achilles was unbelievably fast, faster than every other soldier on the army. He had a very famous temper, and you know that cost the Greeks all these things. But throughout history, you you would only be able to draw attention to like particulars meeting other particulars, right? So Achilles' foul temper meets um, the insecure king meets the stakes of the battlefield meets 10,000 dead Greeks or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, and so you're, you're caught in this like perpetual drawing away from the being of Achilles because Achilles's particulars matter so much into the other particulars of the setting. When Homer tells Achilles as a metaphor of a wolf, one, he's immortalizing wolves and two, he's immortalizing Achilles. He's, he's purifying both of their particulars, right? They like, they like meet in this like same image as they're running along slaughtering Trojans. And that meeting, I think, is that recognition. It's very similar to seeing a form, right? So like in a platonic sense, you catch a form and you hold on to it. And it seems like poetry is really similar, right? Like the, the form of Achilles and the form of the wolf seem very closely tied but somehow you know if, if the form is really the, the thing if it's if it's what it is to be a thing is its form tying together things that are not the same thing but drawing that attention to it is is like false somehow but it but it it works because it it does transform each into it's into a much more universal like thing how that made sense i think so <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, Are you gonna edit I'll... out that laughing, Mr. Kirk? <laughs> I, I, I will edit out the laughing. Um, yeah, keep it. I, I am, I'm, I'm hesitant to say this because uh, so much simpler than what Greg was saying. But I, there's, I think it's also a, and I don't know if this is an example of a, of genius noticing of a like. Of a similarity within dissimilar things, but I, I mean, I think that there are <laughs> there are predator animals and there are prey animals, right? And like when a ravenous wolf descends on prey that it can easily kill, it ceases to be a contingent uh, living being in the world and becomes like a a natural force, right? And that seems to be the relationship between Achilles and the Trojans being captured. It's like he's descending, right? He's he's coming down the mountain. He has the the force of of inertia and gravity behind him, you know. And he's not a man. He's not concerned with with the other parts of being a man. He's a you know he's a beast. He's a fixed. He's a beast fixed on an object with no. There's everything else about him has ceased to matter, right? He's just like a guided missile <laughs> smashing into the the Trojans, um, and that I mean, to me that's and somewhat that's colored by our regular referring back to the culmination of the Iliad when Iliad, when Achilles personifies a force of nature and you know battles mm -hmm. the river and all that. But um, I think that to me that's the universal that there is a kind of 
I don't, I don't want to go on about this too much, but I mean, there, there, there are, you know, men, warriors, whatever, come into conflict and generally one of them is stronger than the other. And like mm-hmm. when they smell blood and they go in for the kill, it's like they cease to be a man and they become something else. Yeah. yeah but I think that's, that's why it is the universal though. Right. Is because it's raising, it's raising man or demigod, I guess in this case, um, Achilles to to this natural force this 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 idea that would be meaningful to any Greek because it, it's it's sort of a, it's a universal phenomenon. Everyone knows that when a when a when a wolf attacks, it's vicious. It's horrifying. It's 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 uh, supernatural almost. You know, mm. I guess it's not supernatural at all. It's perfectly natural, but it's like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean. It's like yeah, it's like yeah, yeah. it's it's abnormal to human experience, or it's a yeah monstrous in a way. Yeah. I mean, if we don't think about it in terms of the soul, it's like uh, the the thumos takes over. Right? So thumos is the, animal, yeah, the animalistic spirit. part. Yeah. Yeah. The lion. Yeah. So as I remember, I'd be interested. I don't know that we could fully answer this question now, but I don't ever remember Herodotus or Thucydides or Polybius, maybe Polybius, but I don't. I don't remember either of those two Greek historians ever using metaphors like that. Which, if that's the case, that's pretty interesting. They definitely don't use epic metaphors in the Homeric sense, but they absolutely use certain metaphors. Like I'm thinking of Thucydides describing the the, the Athenian fleet setting sail, and I think he slips into some like ornamentary language that might be in this like really broad Aristotelian sense metaphorical. But I have to really comb over the passage. Like sure. part of it, it seems literally impossible. To, Aristotle himself uses metaphor in like the first paragraph of the metaphysics when he's talking about how like people seeing sight is the best sense because somehow like the many are one in the light of the day. Um, And it's like the particular language is actually like this really great example of the different kinds of, um, you know, high strung exotic etymologies with some local understandable etymologies you know all like all that stuff um but yeah i also i also don't know how to understand certain passages in herodotus like when he's describing the the persian army like they there's so many of them that they drank up the river that uh, feels like the the acts of odysseus the mm-hmm. ten thousand acts it's just like a it's yeah a way of taking something and just giving it a higher number that stands in for it was yeah, vast. Good. They did a lot. Yeah. <laughs> didn't actually, no, he doesn't expect anyone to think they actually drank up the whole river. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, unless we're to right. think the Greeks were just really superstitious. Well, and so in Aristotle's sense, like everyone uses metaphor all the time, but but it's precisely not a technique any to us. Like when you're exaggerating, you're doing poet thing. But since since you haven't made it your goal to exaggerate. Since you have like the the poet's precise aim is to represent what's not there, or to draw like together, where where you're not intending that, right? You're do, trying to do something else, and you you bring it in along the way. Mm-hmm. I think that's why he's also really interested in in tragedy over epic, where like epic still is kind of it seems it's tinged by history, which is why it tells different episodes, because otherwise, from if if your singular goal is to tell what is not there or like to draw to you know to draw out something not there yet 
um, then you wouldn't tell all these different episodes. You just go straight to the one thing and you could tell a separate story for each of the episodes. Um, I don't know, Greg. I, li I like to think that every one of my metaphors is a work of poetic genius. <laughs> well, and in, in this understanding of metaphor, it's definitely, it's a spectrum, right? Because like everybody is capable of using metaphor on like a basic level, right? Mm -hmm. the, the horse is like the dog and, 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 but it seems like the genius is, is finding connections that are intuitive, not obvious, but, but with intuition, you discover something that then reveals something essential about that thing that has the ring of truth or something. Yeah, I think the genius part of it is that, yeah, it's, it's the unexpectedness is part of the, right? It's like uh, saying a horse is like a dog is not illuminating and that it's something anyone can notice. It's like noticing something no one else has noticed. That's the, right? It, it feels like we'd have to go into the difference between intuition that poetry draws on or uses and whatever it is that philosophy uses. I think I think maybe a good example is an Oedipus putting out your eyes is a, is is the metaphor for something like those red, right? Like the that becomes the the image or like the name upon which which Oedipus bears out what he's done. And I think like what makes that genius is it's makes completely it's like that whole reversal thing, right? The reversal that makes the most log like sense. It's like an incredibly sense-making image but it's so far beyond what anyone would dare to represent right like like stripping your eyeballs from your face as a mark of regret is outrageous but it's but it's precisely what is most fitting um and i think that that's like the real stroke of genius type stuff that we can't well it's it's not irrational strictly because because he uses the word analogy, right? Anna, another logos, another logos. So it has some sort of validity that might even be called philosophic. Like a really good, unexpected, but true metaphor is another logos. It's a logos set, set beside, because not, and I guess what I'm getting at is there's some sort of rule, rule governing it. Because if, if the poet said, Achilles like a tame sheep descended on the Trojans totally unexpected but it, but it seems to violate some rule right it doesn't it doesn't strike us as ha having any sort of insight or any yeah, sort of yeah. universal validity yeah. um, and so that the idea so it's analogy, maybe it's wrong to say that it's completely irrational because it, it, it has to have yeah it has to be able to we have to be able to understand what the connection was once we see the meta read the metaphor right like it can't just be completely yeah can't well, be nonsense maybe it's like yeah it's it's true but it's irrational because i i don't think a set of rules could end up describing no no, no 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 right so it can't be because it fits a set of rules but it absolutely is true to life it's as true as anything else right and, and that's why it's, it's just not lying that's why i like intuition is like it's like when when mm -hmm. when or romeo says julia you're the sun it's like, even if you never have used thought of a loved, you know, the person that you loved in that way, it's like, oh yeah, like I totally relate to that. That is a very intuitive way of saying that. And it's, so it's like, it's, it reveals a truth about even yourself that you didn't notice before you, the poet said that. Uh, and yeah, I think so. And I, maybe, and I, I think you're right, Greg, that it's not a set of rules that you could enunciate, but certain metaphors have a certain sort of validity or something. 
and it's verified by, I guess it's verified both by the intuition of the poet and then by the intuition of the readers. The madman is constantly doing metaphor. Right. Right. Like, like every moment is metaphorical to the madman because there's no consistent reality, but they're, they're not, their metaphors aren't significant or they don't help us. Right. They're just ravings. Have any of you ever read the uh, Nabokov short story, Signs and Symbols? Does anyone know it? The central character, I guess, is a, is a uh, boy who's crazy and he has referential mania. And he believes that everything in the world refers to everything else. And he um, he's constantly like interpreting signs from the clouds. And like he thinks that the mountains are, are like words on a page, you know. And uh, he believes that, like the birds singing back and forth to each other are are communicating to him in this in this melodious language. It's very much a <laughs> it's very much a short story about uh, going mad trying to find a rule or a reason or a set of guidelines to understand poetic intuition and metaphor, um, and driving yourself crazy trying to in interpret the world that way. It's really good. I <laughs> highly recommend it to you. But I think should we go on to what what Alex wanted to discuss since we're kind of uh, can, can I just make one more point and then I'll be ready to go on. Yeah. I think I think what gets tricky about thinking about what makes a valid metaphor or not is like if you take for example Moby Dick, right? Which is one of the reasons it's brilliant is because of the way Melville uses extended metaphors throughout the book. And for like 70 years, people really didn't get it. They really he was a madman. For 70 years he was a madman. Mm. And then in the 20s there's a melville revival and people finally get it yeah um, and so i mean what we have to say is that was a that was a a good tragedy and valid metaphorical activity all along and yet the madman was <laughs> went unrecognized by the polis not because of Foucault. Not yeah yeah not because the <laughs> metaphor was deficient but I mean, someone has to be able to recognize it, right? Like, it's not as if he, he felt uh, people, there was a small group of people that, that continued to know, understand that Melville was, I mean, Emerson understood that Melville was a genius, even yeah. uh, contemporaneously. And like the signs and symbols thing, I think is that it's like the, you are the mad, it, you know, he's the madman, right? It's like if, if the pattern of, of associations you're making only refer to you and there's, you cannot connect them to anyone else in any meaningful way, then that's not poetic genius, right? That's madness, right? And that's that's I guess we've been saying no but it, but that is a good point though Elijah and it, it feels like what happens there is there's this sense of temporality in our understanding of of the audience audience's relationship to the poet and the poetry whereas like in Aristotle that doesn't feel really the case it's just like this is what is accepted as good and this is what is accepted as bad and like there's no like question about like will will agathon's you know version of the trojan war actually end up being recognized as greater than homer's iliad you know uh, whereas like i think now we're like constantly confronted with that problem where like what's going to be remembered like how is the canon going to change like these sorts of questions so i think that is i think that is legitimate well yeah because we, we have burial of texts and like yeah. loss and we also have you know, like for, for Aristotle, it's, it, Homer's as far back as it goes. So he's working within a very small canon. And then also the nobility have a, like a set system to determine what is good. And Aristotle is basically completely on board with it. And so like, we definitely don't have that anymore, right? You, like a genius can just get 
get you know publish a book and it gets lost in the thick of things it does go it does go to the a really serious question which is like is <laughs> what makes something good right i mean is there a is a novel that's never recognized as great is it great in itself i mean or does it require you know does it require public recognition recognition right i mean like what is good about it if if nobody else notices or cares no i think that's right but but i i think it's like in that sense like i think to be able to make that argument um validly you'd have to say this is the kind of work that has not been recognized but it has the potential to be recognized given that the conditions are right for the, an audience to come in and uh, appreciate it but i think greatness is one of those things that is just dependent upon public recognition otherwise it's like a kind of a nonsensical question it's like if it if a if a work of art just completely goes unnoticed then it's like well it, it, it might as well not have existed you know but you it, don't it think that it didn't become historical you don't think that aristotle is is at least um suggesting the possibility that that nature itself suggests what the best art works would look like and the best poets align their work with nature and that's what makes them the greatest not that they're recognized by the public or awarded um, I think he, I think he better. is, but I think it, I think that's because he all, again, like he sees the polis as so aligned with nature and nature yeah. so aligned with the polis. And so that aristocratic hierarchy of values is just sort of, it's just sort of uh, baked into the system yeah. and of, <laughs> of nature itself. Yeah. Whereas now we, we, I mean, like we just constantly operate from the distinction of nature and history. And so it just it just doesn't work the same way i don't think i i think all of that's right and i think again it's important to stress that how pre-darwinian his understanding of nature is mm -hmm. so therefore the greatness of of poetry is static in a way that we just can't conceive right mm -hmm. our idea of poetry is that it's evolving not unlike darwin's nature and that's just taken for granted mm -hmm. yeah and so in that sense that changes all the conversations about greatness right yeah 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 so in that sense, like the greatness of Melville is that he was sort of a antennae <laughs> mm -hmm. poking forward a few decades in front of everyone else, you know? Yeah. Yeah. In some sense, it's like, it, we almost revere those people who weren't famous in their time. Cause it's like, mm -hmm. oh, they were just ahead of their time. They weren't recognized. We like, <laughs> we like love the madman, you know? Yeah. The cutting edge of Melville, right. In this story, Melville was the cutting edge of the, Mel of the evolution of, of, maybe metaphor, but certainly literature. Mm -hmm. Well, and it does seem like those, those poets now that, that were famous in their time often like lose their foothold in the canon more mm -hmm. easily, you know, like, like Dickens, you know, Long, like, Longfellow, like, nobody reads Longfellow anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's a hundred different examples. Have any of you ever read or heard of Charles Nelson Riley? No, no. Well, he's from Indiana. There are memorials to him all over the place. He was the, second best-selling poet of the uh 19th century i think probably behind longfellow and he's just like completely vanished <laughs> from, from... <laughs> yeah that's wild herman melville an antennae of genius <laughs> poking into the future <laughs> now, 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 now i'm giving the highlights <laughs> 
perfect. Be poking my antenna and genius into your future later. Please, please prepare yourself accordingly. All right. So, the final book, book five of the Poetics, Epic and Tragedy Compared. The section begins with Aristotle's questioning which of the two genre is the higher mimesis and uh the criterion he gives is if the less vulgar is higher yeah the less vulgar is higher is always addressed to a better audience than that which like tragedy is addressed to everybody is quite evidently vulgar so by the vulgarity criterion uh one has to conclude that tragedy is lesser but then Aristotle turns and says, this is not not so much an accusation against the art of poetry as it is against the art of acting. For it is perfectly possible for a reciter of epic poetry to overdo his gestures. Remember, too, that tragedy can achieve its effect without gestures from actors just as well as an epic can. Its quality becomes evident even when it is read. If, then, tragedy is shown to be superior in all other respects, this does not have to be an inherent part of it. So the points of superiority for tragedy is that it has all the elements epic poetry has. And second, it accomplishes its end with greater economy of length, and a tragedy is a more, more of a unity than epic because an epic can furnish material for several tragedies. So what I was wondering about this method of comparing epic and tragedy by separating them from their performances. And also, I was wondering in light of uh, just sort of how the, how the works have lived on through time, that uh, we have one modern example that we are familiar with in John Battista Vico, who places a very high value on the epic poems, not for their artistic value, I would say, but because the epic poems show us moderns, the ancient Greek world, more vividly than Oedipus the King does. But Aristotle is making the case for, for tragedy being a, a, a better art form than the epic poem so do you think that do you think that aristotle's method is good taking them on a purely textual basis well it's really simple right it's it's that the the tragedy is is trying to do less with the exact same equipment and so by it it doesn't overreach right it just presents um and in doing so it's it like because he has that earlier line that, about the Homeric verse and it seems like a lot of people who are hung up on epic travesty being better can't get over how good Homeric verse is or epic verse and he says nature itself created it and that's you know it's also kind of points to our earlier conversation about the the like intermingling between poets nature and the state um, right, nature itself gave us this verse. It's the best verse. It'll never be beaten. But fortunately for the tra tragedians, they can just write tragedy in that verse. 
And then, so it, lack, it doesn't lack in verse. It's got some musical and spectacle, which increases its pleasures and its representation. It has visit, vividness and reading, right? So even if you take away the spectacle, it still works. And then I think most importantly, it's shorter, which means that um, it's concentrated and it's a whole rather than a plurality. There's no multiple arcs, so you're not stretching the significance which I think makes a ton of sense. Like it seems like extraordinarily clear, but yeah, those are entirely, and I think that is where he's on most aesthetic ground, even though I think even this aim for like a superior aesthetic is a philosophic one ultimately, where he, he wants the purest form of the art. And we'll say that's the best art. He's not interested in what's the most experimental version of the art or what art pushes art furthest or what art is most you know, dealing with various possibilities. Well, I think, I think the question here, though, is it's sort of, I mean, the question is, is he being overly cerebral in locating so much in the text, in the words themselves, and neglecting these other parts? Like, well, like, if we think, like, there are some very good movies out there, and there, there are movies that I would say are as, are as good as a good novel. And yet, if I were just to take the script of that movie, that script would not be as good as a good novel. And I would be losing something essential if I were to say, yeah, the spectacle doesn't really matter. The spectacle part of the movie doesn't really matter. It's just the words that count. Uh, it's a, it, the question is, is that a reductive way to think about what a tragedy actually is, I think. Is that what you're getting at, Alex? Yes, because Aristotle, I suppose, in his time, this is another one of the things that I was thinking about because Aristotle's criterion, in one way, it takes, because of taking the works purely as text, it rather abstracts them from their place in time. However, the grounds for the abstraction is that in Aristotle's time, you could attend a, a recitation of the epic poem, or you could mm -hmm. attend a tragic play but what he probably could not could not possibly have envisioned is that at some point the uh, ancient Greek way of life would be uh, essentially extinct, mm -hmm. and so the the epic poems of Homer allow people after two thousand years to craft some sort of imaginative ancient Greek world in the mind that that doesn't uh, present itself to Aristotle. I think that's what, what he, he doesn't see, but I don't fault him for it. <laughs> he's, he's living in his time and we are not. Mm -hmm. And that's why the epic becomes so important for Vico, right? It's because like now suddenly historical curiosities are really, really important. Whereas for Aristotle, it's, it doesn't seem that interesting. Right. Cause like, cause like in some sense, like if we're going to track down like the, the, true the truth of human nature in the way that Vico does like it's really really important that we have these like origin stories these these like you know most um original forms of mankind man the human life and and the epics like do the best job partly because they're so long and go into like random details and tangents and stuff and give us that access to that kind of truth right mm -hmm. so, so but I think Aristotle wouldn't have cared about us like to, to him 
who would just be kind of like base slavish people, right? I think what Aristotle's project here is to find the pinnacle of mimesis. And I think he, it's, it is like this really simple test where it's like, well, tragedy does it most simply and directly, therefore it's the best art. And there's nothing more to it. But what, I, what I'm getting at, which is maybe a different point, and uh, I'll put this out there, and if it's not interesting, we don't have to pursue it, but um, there's this sort of separation. There's the words of the tragedy, and then there's everything else, right? And there's the words of the epic, and then there's everything else. There's this sort of separation, which, uh, as we know historically, right, the, the Neoplatonists, you know, hated the body, and then they give that, they sort of influence the Gnostic Christians, and there's, there's some sort of, I don't know, I'm wondering, is there some sort of denial of embodiment or some denial of like the fully human and, and focusing so intently on the words and not wanting to think about all these other aspects that go into the tragedy of the, the spectacle and the song and the experience, I mean, phenomenologically, the experience of being with other people and watching this thing. He's just kind of like, yeah, those aren't, those aren't part of the art. And I'm, maybe he's right. I don't know. I, I think, but I think it's an interesting question. And and I'm kind of trying to maybe think about a way to think about Alex's question of whether focusing so much on the words themselves is a fair move on Aristotle's part in evaluating art. And that was kind of what my movie example was trying to get at. Other than Shakespeare, have any of you ever read a play? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. S- S- Samuel yep. Beckett. <laughs> yeah sure yeah yeah. Oh, yeah death death of a salesman not that often i mean don't you i guess okay but do you feel like something is oh is reading a play is reading a play preferable to seeing pleasurable it? i mean is it is it isn't something really essential lost if, if you walk into a barnes and noble there's about there's like one single bookshelf of plays and there's 40 bookshelves of novels that's what you're getting at, right? Yeah. One thing that I think is really strange about the poetics uh, is that he doesn't talk about any other kind of, I mean, it's like he, he must have known about like Hesiod, right? And Pindar. I mean, these are famous examples of, of Greek, of literature. And he like doesn't address any of that. And I think it's very strange that he doesn't want to talk about pastorals or anything like that or lyric poetry, but he mm. does want to say that tragedy is better than epic just considered as words on a page right without any other without any spectacle any music i mean the 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 unity is important but he acknowledges that the iliad and the odyssey are are unified objects right that you can comprehend as a as a whole and he acknowledges that homer is a immortal he said that multiple times so it's not as if an epic can't be a unity right he just says tragedy is yeah like greg was saying like a simpler form of the same unity and like it equals the epic in just in terms of the the words on the page and has all the other elements that you know add to it but you don't you don't even need them right to me (laughs) to me it was a very unsatisfying uh conclusion (laughs) right so is it implicit in aristotle's method of looking at the two genre based on text alone that to make the comparison of which is better he wants to consider only the skill of the author 
rather than whatever an interpreter brings to the table. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Is like, I yeah. think the pro I think the problem is, is is like a category thing where as soon as you start talking about the performance of it, now you have to bring in like the craft of the director, the craft of the um, the craft of the uh, actors and whatnot. Right, but the but, point is, tragedy is the equal of epic, just in terms of the words, and it can also support all these incidental things. Right, and that's part of what makes it superior. Mm -hmm. Right, like actors aren't really artists to, to Aristotle. They don't. They don't properly mimic. They can't bring forth like a, a true representation. And I think yep. part of me is I like. I completely agree with you guys. I think that like. Um, it would be weird to say that like a screenplay of a really good movie is as good art as a book or something like that. Like it, that's just dead inert matter to me. Um, even though, you know, it requires artistic, deep artistic insight to render a screenplay. It's, it's, it's like, it's like, it'd be like reading a first draft of a novel, right? Like the, 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 the presence is there, but it's not, it's not doing what it's supposed to do. But for, and so there's something like really suspicious about Aristotle going through. It's like, I've identified the what of poetry and it's this, but he's, he's, he's like precisely taken from it the thing it's supposed to accomplish, right? Which is like in the ring, be there. But then I'm also sympathetic to it because it seems like he has a, he, like it just seems like he has a totally alien idea of what art is to us. Whereas like for us moderns, representation always has the kind of like ghost of the missing world or the absent or the hidden or the like the other world behind it. And I just don't see that as at all his understanding about what life is. And so if you're, if you're thinking really differently than us about what life is like, then when Sophocles dashed out Oedipus Tyrannus and like submitted it to the public audience already he had accomplished the like bringing forth of this of this like inc inc somehow incredible thing um and that's and that's that that would make Aristotle right in ways that we can't we can barely even consider so you think that you think that part of the part of the unity that he's considering is that it can be composed in a Maybe maybe one way to say it is is if art is a techne, then in some ways poetry is like farming, right? And, and that's really different than the way we want to talk about poetry. Um, so if poetry is like farming, the person we know when when they do it, when they really do it, um, and they're bringing it out, like they're bringing it forth and they're bringing it out. And who brings it forth and out more than Oedipus, right? Like Homer fails to that in some ways, like like the 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 book meanders it gets lost right it's not it's he doesn't just he doesn't uproot the soul of the matter and then that's it and if mm -hmm. it feels like if that's what a techne means uh which would make it i think a very unmodern concept then yeah tragedy beats epic because it 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 doesn't it's more technical mm -hmm. why is concision more more technical because the, the world is close like the, the a techne yeah. a techne bring uh, a techne is is the the human it's, it's i keep i keep i'm so obsessed with the scene but the when when apollo uproots the the 
Pharmacon and says like the top half kills you, the bottom half will save you, right? And it's it's Apollo uprooting it. That to me is like the god, the Greek god bringing the techno around. Um, and I, I just I just think that Aristotle's description of tragedy is is seeking that kind of Apollo uprooting the thing, and he seems to think that's more valuable than anything else. And I think that's precisely what like we don't understand. Like for us, good art is inherently mysterious, right? It should open up into these like realms of interpretation and like be be applicable across cultures and stuff like that and for aristotle that's a dead concept like there's no way like other you know i imagine that he thinks other cultures can't even make art let alone um and you know i understand the greek art yeah 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 yeah. what what, what you're getting at greg is that so like oedipus right it begins with the tragedy it begins with a prophecy and ends with the fulfillment of that prophecy and it's a whole in it's in that sense it's a whole it's a discrete unit kind of in the way Auerbach is talking about it where even the odyssey right it has to, it has to start in media res because it's extracting from such a long story and then as it ends he's he's getting ready to go off to his next adventure and so the odyssey is not a whole in that way and what you're saying greg is that aristotle seems to embody a greek cultural attitude that that there's something pr- preferable about presenting the whole or something desirable. Yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's a, a profound psychic need that we don't have access to in, in a complete sense. Uh-huh. But I, I, and okay, well, even if we go there, I guess my complaint is Aristotle defines the spectacle of tragedy as incidental, which I think he does. And I just, I like, I just think that that's the way a philosopher would think about it, but I think he's missing something. I completely agree with that. No, no, I, I don't want to take it away, but, but if I'm really trying to read with, with the grain as much as possible, I think that the spectacle is inherently unwhole because you're reliant on the actors and you're reliant on the setting and somehow um, you're falling away from that mimesis thing because it's it's like weird. Like the more imitational you get, the less entire it is to itself. Um, which is why I think he wants to throw out the spectacle thing. But yeah, it's to me completely insane to throw spectacle. Like it's just not you're not doing it anymore. Um, yeah, Aristotle says it himself, right in the in the second paragraph there, right because the book is about how to distinguish good and bad poetry but to compare tragedy and epic we have to eliminate the possibility of good and bad actors good and bad practitioners because that's a different question which is what paul was saying and it becomes much more contingent it's interesting though, I, I, I don't know if you guys know anything about this, but Adam was talking about those different forms of poetry, the pastoral and the lyric. It seems to me that the epic and the tragedy are the most public sorts of poetry. Like the, 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 the sorts most likely to be performed in public, consumed in public, consumed with others. Mm-hmm. Not, not that your average Greek was like reading Pindar, you know, by himself or something, but there seems to be something. No, but they thought it was like they thought it was just like this this like sort of narcissistic wallowing like pindar was like really disparaged in his time it's just like this guy's just a mopey <laughs> bastard you know 
Well, and, I, and another way of saying it is the epic and the tragic are dealing with uh, what we would call national myths in a way that Pindar is not quite, I don't think. So they, they do serve some sort of social function in a different way by virtue of that. I think Pindar was also Spartan, if I'm not mistaken. Aristotle loves the Spartans, though. Yeah. But yeah, Pindar is a really gross Spartan. Because <laughs> the... <like, laughs> He's the lowest, most base of all the Spartans. <laughs> like, what, what kind of mother did he have? That, like, I don't the, pro- the problem is he had a mother. <laughs> I don't know that he was a Spartan. I think he might have been a Thebian, actually. Well, per Mr. Kick, Mr. Keck's suggestion, should we uh, sum up what we've learned today? Philosophers are really bad at reading poetry. <laughs> Aristotle was the first ADD kid. I want, I want something short. I don't. I can't hold my attention. <laughs> Does anyone feel like this changes their relationship to the Iliad and the Odyssey? Like, did, is Aristotle say anything useful about the ethics we just read, or does he just his sensibility just <laughs> doesn't work with those with those books? Right. I'm. I'm inclined to say Aristotle has not given me any insight into Homer. Yeah, at least not through the poetics. The only thing he's changed for me is what it means to lie or depict something. Like I think that is, I think he is seeing depiction in a way that's really different and interesting to me. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that's hardly limited to the Iliad, the Odyssey, and in some ways, I think he completely misreads those books. Well. Uh, the one conspicuous absence from the poetics is the the telos. I think, unless I missed it, is the telos of of the epic form, because we get really clearly what tragedy is supposed to do, and I don't think we get near as clearly or or at all what an epic is supposed to do, which then becomes a question for me. It's not clear to me that it's clear. It it makes total sense to me how reading Sophocles would evoke fear and pity and would leave me with a, a feeling of catharsis. It is not at all self-evident to me that that is the effect of the Odyssey, for example. Yeah. Although I suppose you could have a cathartic uh, experience with the, the killing of the suitors, right? Well, yes, but I think perhaps. Thinking about the Iliad though. Oh yeah, it's a little different. The, the, because the Trojans are rendered so humanely, you, it's mm-hmm. hard to have a, you don't like to see Hector die. I don't think the poem wants you to, uh, I'm not sure how this works in the Odyssey, but certainly in the Iliad, you're, you're not supposed to have just like an uncomplicated relationship of like, fuck yeah, to, to Achilles killing Hector, right? Yeah. That's Which you I'm might, you might think is the relationship with Homer or with um, uh, Odysseus the suitors. suitors. Yeah, I think so. Mm. Yeah, so really quick, book 24, he says, uh, it's like the first couple lines. It's not, it's not the telos proper, but it's, it's uh, I read it as very similar. It says, again, epic must have the same kinds as tragedy for it, it is either simple or complex or an epic of character or one of suffering. Its parts, except for song and spectacle, are the same. In fact, it needs reversals, recognitions, and sufferings. So all, like all those parts, especially the reversals, recognitions, and sufferings are the same. And again, the reasoning and diction should be elevated. And he says a couple lines later, the Iliad is a simple story of suffering, the Odysseus a story of a character that is complex, Mm -hmm. for it is a discovery through and through. Yeah. 
Yeah, are we supposed to infer that Aristotle means for epic poetry to provide the same sort of catharsis as tragedy? Just not in a that's the question compact way Mm -hmm. i think so i think that's that's like all he's left and it's clear that he's not looking for other things in it right yeah and that's that's what that's what elijah is wondering about is whether whether epic should have other uh purposes another purpose than the the catharsis well, and it's, it feels like when the, when he, he get, it feels like the teleology of Aristotle is like it, it it narrows the possibility of things so much where it's like this thing is supposed to accomplish X and it's like I just we just don't think about art in that way like we want it to be like almost the opposite of that where it can just like do whatever you know and it just and like when you start thinking about it, it's like okay well yeah, the I mean, you guys already kind of like displayed it. It's like, yeah, the, the epics do have something like catharsis, but it's not nearly as pointed as the catharsis in the tragedies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and certainly the I mean, the Odyssey, there are many, many incidents in the Odyssey that uh, are not cathartic in that way. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I feel like the, the I, mean, I think this is new what Aristotle would object to is that there are a lot of emotional strands that are sort of built up in the odyssey that don't have a tidy resolution right whereas in oedipus it is very taut <laughs> and everything mm-hmm. is resolved right you, you guys know what you guys know what a plumb line is like when you're building a house it's the line that makes sure everything is is straight i mean aristotle sets as his plumb line this idea of catharsis through fear and pity which sort of forces him to judge tragedy as as more successful than or or superior to to epic and basically i think probably what all of us would say is well given those conditions you're right but but we don't agree with the the baseline or the plumb line the iliad's a bad poem if catharsis is your plumb line because Mm -hmm. the person you feel catharsis for is hector not achilles right like (laughs) like the, the, the the whole moral order is completely upset like with with um with the Oedipus is really clear, right? He suffers, he's purified. That's, there you go. Right. Like Hector suffers when he's winning and like every, it's just so messy. That makes it seem like he yeah. is not, Aristotle is not contradicting Plato as much as I thought before, that he is wanting poetry to essentially have a positive political social function and be very, have a very clear moral lesson. <laughs> uh, I think so. I think I think that's right. I just I just think that their idea of that social function is yeah. is different. Yeah. Well, should we leave it there? I think that's uh, that we will with that. We will conclude this episode of the key to all mythologies. <laughs> please please join us again next week, and we'll be reading the first half of the uh, story of King David as an epic. And feel free to donate to our Patreon. <laughs>